The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome back to Material World, where we dig into the stories behind all the things you spend your money on. I'm Jenny Kaplan. I cover all the things you drink and smoke for Bloomberg News. And I'm Lindsay Rupp. I cover all the stores in the mall for Bloomberg. We're currently in the middle of the holiday season, the most important time of year for retailers. That's right. All that present buying you're doing is what retailers prepare and wait for all year round. But for some companies, though, your dollars matter so much more than you think they do. It's about survival for them more than it is about turning a profit. The first few months of the year, right after the holidays, are when most failing retailers actually throw in the towel. But it turns out, even when a company dies, its soul, and by that I mean its brand, sometimes lives on. It actually happens a lot. Delia's, the teen apparel retailer, and the Sharper Image, which is a gadget company, are examples of brands that were revived either on the internet or as part of another company's portfolio. Today we're going to examine this phenomenon. What happens to brands when companies don't succeed? Why is it so hard to actually kill a brand? A perfect example of this is PacSun. You know, that surfer company, Jenny, you probably were into that. You seem like a surf girl. Love that you think that. I can't say I was much of a surfer myself, but I definitely remember the company. Fair enough. Well, they expanded way too quickly, couldn't adapt to changing fashion trends that didn't really favor that surfer look anymore, and they filed for bankruptcy in April of this year. Under bankruptcy protection, PacSun closed its underperforming stores, cut down its debt, and emerged with a new owner, Golden Gate Capital. Yet many people probably don't even know it was in trouble. People like my 16-year-old brother who just sent me his Christmas list, which has a lot of PacSun clothes on it. Jamie Salter, chief executive officer of Authentic Brands, walked us through what happened with the similar company, Aeropostal, the teen apparel brand we all remember from our days haunting the malls. There was a time, probably when I was in middle school, when it seemed like everybody had one of their hooded sweatshirts that had the big Aeropostal logo over their chest. It's Jamie's job to find and buy names like Juicy Couture and Jones New York when the company that owns them or that operates them is starting to fail, but there's still an opportunity for the brand to live on. Well, look, we look at a bunch of different matrix when, when we do this. Why is this brand distressed? Why is this brand uh, have problems? Uh, is it because the brand is is making a lot of money from a margin standpoint, but has the wrong overhead structure? Is it the brand is not being exploited properly from a distribution point of view? Um, is the brand global? You know, sometimes the brands are doing absolutely great, just their capital structure isn't correct. 
i.e. Aeropostel is, is, is a perfect example of a company that was actually doing pretty good and was on a rebound, but had the wrong capital structure in place. You know, definitely had too many stores, needed to shrink the store base for sure. So we had to make sure that the only way to really buy Aeropostel was one, can you shrink the store base? So because they were in chapter 11, you're able to do that. And two, can you make a proper deal with the landlords that financially makes sense for what the brand is doing from a volume standpoint? And the third thing is, you know, can you get rid of that debt, which is, you know, really pushing you down um, from, from, from a finance standpoint, you know, can you, can you make that interest payment go away? And if you can't make that interest payment go away, you probably shouldn't buy the company because at the end of the day, if all you're doing is going to work every day to pay your credit card bill at the end of the month, you either got to get a new job or you better stop spending on your credit card because you're never going to get, you know, from sort of underwater and you're going to always be treading and eventually you're gonna drown. We'll come back to Jamie later to hear what happened with Aeropostale, but let's rewind for a second. Why are brands important to begin with? Why would someone like Jamie not just let them go? We talked with expert Ryan Cotton from Bain Capital's private equity team to hear more about the importance of brands. Ryan buys brands and helps make them successful. His portfolio includes Tom's and Canada Goose. First, you have to start with the question of sort of what is the fundamental value of a brand? And, and really, a brand is worth what it stands for. What's its meaning? And what does it convey to the consumer? And I think generically, brands convey one of two things, either a performance attribute, uh, some dimension on which they excel and the brand is a proxy for that incredible performance, or an emotional or value-driven attribute. What do they say about you and your values? Uh, what do they say about what matters to you? And, and how does that brand make you feel? So take a, a good example in, say, watches. For decades, Swiss watches have been synonymous with performance. Swiss movement means precision. It means highest quality. It means technology. And so they've been able to get a premium in terms of price for that performance attribute that brands that are you know, Swiss-made watches have real uh, currency as a result of in the face of you know, more generic manufacturing movements and things like that. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing emotional benefit creep in even to the watch space. And so a great example uh, is a brand like Shinola, started in Detroit, built on American craftsmanship and synonymous with trying to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. And so there's a reason that uh, our president wears a Shinola watch is because he's trying to endorse the emotional and value-driven space that that brand occupies uh, instead of wearing something like a Rolex that stands for different emotional attributes uh, and stands for different values. And so one of the great changes I think we're seeing in consumers right now is a awakening to the, the message that the brands that you buy and the products you support sends about you. Uh, ultimately, the value of a brand is also influenced by how efficiently the brand is able to communicate that value proposition, be it a performance attribute or an emotional attribute. 
And then the second dimension that affects value is to whom do you communicate those attributes? Is it just to you? Is it just giving you the emotional satisfaction of knowing you bought quality or knowing you bought something that's aligned with your values? Or does it televise those to the world around you? Does wearing that brand, does you know, interacting with that brand, does endorsing that brand send a broader message about who you are? You have to separate uh, execution from brand value. Uh, there are great brands that have stumbled in their execution. Coca-Cola famously stumbled in its execution. There may be no better brand in the world than Coca-Cola. It stands for happiness, a emotional attribute that everyone in the world wants to participate in. Uh, so that's a really powerful and really valuable brand. Uh, but they stumbled their toe in execution in the 90s when they rolled out new Coke because they messed with the viscerality of the association between taste and that emotional space of happiness and confused the consumer. And so while the brand Coke was still incredibly valuable, they executed against that in a misguided way that, that really impaired the value of their franchise for a long period of time. Fortunately, brands are enduring, and so they're able to walk it back and introduce classic Coke and go back to the days of old and reinflate that brand value because it was very real and very durable and very hard to kill. Just a quick note about the Coca-Cola fiasco Ryan mentioned. Coca-Cola is often cited as one of the best brands in the world. The company's trademark bottle is one of the most recognizable symbols. In the middle of the soda wars in the 1980s, when Coke and Pepsi were really at each other's throats, Pepsi released a bunch of ads that showed taste testers picking Pepsi over Coke. You're about to take the Pepsi challenge. You know, I have two bottles of cola back here, and you don't know which is which. No, I don't. We have never met before. That's correct. Okay, now I'm going to pick this up and tell me which one you chose. Pepsi! (laughs) Take the Pepsi challenge. Let your taste decide. Right, guys? Right! Coke decided to launch a new product called New Coke that beat Pepsi at that taste test game. Introducing the new taste of Coca-Cola. In this country, the best have a way of getting better, and Coke just did. From today, there's a new taste, a new standard against which colas will be judged. But Coke didn't do consumer tests with any sort of labels on the beverages. When they took away the old Coke formula and replaced it with New Coke, The company received more than a thousand calls a day complaining about the new taste and freaking out about the switch. They hadn't accounted for the fact that people had developed a serious emotional bond with the classic formula. Ryan explained that companies with operational problems but great brands can be reborn, while companies without that added soul factor can't. So what happens when brands like Sports Authority or Radio Shack outlive their usefulness and fail? You are seeking protection from your creditors and you will basically stop the clock on thing you know, on things like rent payments, um, debt payments. Lauren Coleman Lochner, our colleague on the consumer team here at Bloomberg News, helped explain what it actually means to file for bankruptcy and what happens once a company takes that step. Lauren covers distressed retailers. It puts everything on hold while you try to figure out how everybody's gonna get made, not made whole, but paid, and how you can either uh, rescue or wind down the business. So filing for bankruptcy puts a freeze on everything the company owes to other people until they can find a buyer or come to an agreement to pay back part of the debt by selling off everything they own. It's a last resort, not an easy solution. 
could you walk us through what happens when a company is failing? Uh, retailers in particular have a very limited window of time where they can um, close doors in a bankruptcy. So what they try to do is they try to go in with what's known as a pre-packaged, um, basically a pre-arranged bankruptcy. And they will ideally have identified the stores that they want to close because bankruptcy gives you this freedom, you know, to reject leases and close down locations that you don't want anymore. And then they'll make arrangements. They'll eventually hire people to, you know, conduct the going out of business sales. And ideally also, if there's going to be a sale of either the brand or the entire company, including an ongoing store presence, they will come in with what's known as a stocking horse bidder. And this is a bidder that, you know, basically sets a floor for um, other potential bids. There will also be an auction because the idea in a bankruptcy, of course, is to get the best return for creditors. So you often you will see they'll file the put out a press release or, you know, the first day um, docket will come out and you'll see that there's already this identified potential potential buyer of the company. It seems to me like there are a lot of brands that end up sort of lingering on into this really slow, long-term decline. So, you know, I'm thinking about Claire's. Claire's has been around for a really long time. It's definitely well past its heyday. But, you know, it still exists out there in the world. Even, you know, Aeropostale, it lingered, it declined, it did file for bankruptcy, but some of its stores are still in operation. Is it hard to kill these brands that seem to be, you know, well past their expiration date? I think it is to, like, ultimately really put, like, the final stake in their heart because there's always going to be someone, some entity that'll buy them really cheaply and they'll, you know, put them online or, you know, yeah, maybe you'll have, you know, some of these companies can work with a much smaller store base. Um, so yeah, even if they're not great brands, I mean, Radio Shack was in trouble for years, years and years and years before it filed for bankruptcy. And people would say to me all the time, I don't know how this company survives. And, you know, they try to reinvent themselves. And it's, I mean, that's the thing. So these brands can linger on, but it's really hard to reinvent or kind of revive a brand once they sort of fall into trouble. Ideally, you know, you want to have a going concern um, business. What and does that mean? So going concern is just basically you will reorganize and you will emerge from bankruptcy, which American Apparel did briefly. Um, so that means you file for bankruptcy, you get some of your debt forgiven, right. and then you you still operate as a company, but maybe a smaller right. one? You come out Right. With a lot of your you've gotten out of a lot of bad leases that were costing you money. You know, it allows you to make certain changes uh, that you need to to help revive your business. And for retailers, you know, a big one is is getting re, well, you're restructuring the debt, which you can do in or out of court. And then, you know, you're closing unprofitable stores, which, you know, companies ideally would like to do outside of bankruptcy. But in bankruptcy, you can do this in a big way if you have a lot of stores that you, you want to get out of. That's, you know, it's certainly a compelling option. One company that couldn't avoid bankruptcy was the bookseller Borders, once a major competitor to Barnes & Noble. They filed for bankruptcy in 2011. So Borders was challenged, and Barnes & Noble still being challenged, um, by Amazon. And... 
they, um, you know, you see this in a lot of, we saw during the first sort of big retail bankruptcy shakeout in uh, post-recession, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, you saw a lot of the uh, number two retailers going out in their categories. So in a consumer um, in the electronics area, it was Circuit City went away. Um, you know, Borders went away in the books area. We've seen, you know, in the office space, obviously, there have been um, uh, a lot of problems. And there just wasn't enough room for two big retailers in the space. If you think going out of business sucks for retailers, it can be a real challenge for people who are supplying those companies. To understand what that feels like, we talked with Ian Christie, head of Bazillion Points Books, about his experience with Borders. Bazillion Points is an independent publisher of books predominantly about indie, metal, and punk music. We had put a few books out. We had this Swedish death metal book, and um, it was it got a starred review in Publishers Weekly, and it, it sold out really f- quickly. We reprinted and kept putting out other books. We had maybe like five or six books together. And at that point, I approached a distributor and said, um, you know, look, I, I think this is a thing now. Uh, how would you like to represent us to the book trade? And one of the goals of that was to get into the big box stores like Borders and Barnes and & Noble. And... Lo and behold, our first holiday season out, it happened. We got um, big snowballing orders, and um, Borders particularly took in the fall maybe like, I don't know, a couple thousand copies of of, uh, two or three of our books. That's great. This is exactly how it was supposed to be working. Um, Two or three days after Christmas, we get this mournful email from our new distributor saying, well... Borders isn't going to Borders is going to go into arrears and, and basically isn't going to pay is going to possibly pay like ten cents on the dollar. My, of course, my first question is great. Well, can we get our books back now? And uh, no, so sorry, that's impossible. Those are uh, you know this is it's now their property as they go into their own bankruptcy proceedings and pay off all of their many many uh, creditors. And so it basically felt royally stiffed by. Um, a company that plainly knew that they were going to be declaring bankruptcy and filing for protection and took that as a license to go make outsized orders from uh, any anything that looked attractive to them. And then, you know, whatever cash they could bring in for the holidays, great. Right after that, cut off paying the bills and just start paying off the executives and, and renting out the uh, empty stores. There definitely seemed to be to me a pattern of... Uh, exploiting their situation, right? Knowing that you're not going to be able to stay in business very much longer, seeing the opportunity of being able to make these big holiday orders, and then really like with, within days reneging on payment on those bills. Um, I actually heard anecdotally that there was another publisher that they had said, they had held this golden carrot out and said, listen, if you, we really like such and such a book, but the cover's not right. If you can change the cover, we'll make an order for, X thousand amount. And then this company actually went out and printed books specifically for the for the Borders holiday season. So, so you know, oh really rude, really, really ornery, really like a, a bitter pill kind of uh, exit from the marketplace. I think at some point they, they 
were selling everything. They were selling everything they had on hand in stores for like, uh, you know, 99% off, basically. I remember posting something this cheekily to social media, kind of like Abby Hoffman steal this book, bestseller in ancient times of the 1960s or something. Basically saying like, feel, you know, don't hurt, it wouldn't hurt our feelings at all if you just went and took anything you saw with our name on it out of a borders. I don't think they're paying the security guards either, so. Wow, when companies do die, they take a lot of people down with them. But going back to our example from the top of the show, they don't always stay dead. Here's Authentic Brands' Jamie Salter again to tell us what happened with Aeropostale and why. At the end of the day, when you really looked at Aero and you look at Aero closely, the logo was still, you know, a big part of the business. And let's call a spade a spade, logo's gone. So I think that, you know, where Arrow went wrong is they they kept the logo too long on the product. And you'll notice that the, the, the logo has definitely come off the product in the last six months. And they were turning the corner um, and the merchants were doing a great job, the designers were doing a great job, but a little too late. We, as the buyer, we saw the turn happening and the more research that we did and the more we sort of looked under the hood, we got very, very comfortable that they really had the company on the right track. Comp stores were doing much better, but again, because they had, you know, this, this, this high um, debt, they couldn't service their debt properly. So if we can make that debt go away, we felt very comfortable. We could turn the corner because the company was well on track to already turning the corner. What are you planning to do moving forward? Are you making changes or how do you continue that forward momentum that you identified when you were looking at the brand? Well, first of all, they had an excellent team in there, but I think the team was a little too big for, for sort of what was going on there. So the team has, has definitely been, has been shrunk. Um, and I think that, you know, if we continue to surround them with incredible, smart merchants and designers, um, they'll be able to take Arrow above where 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 it was you know six months ago um so we're feeling very confident that you know we're going to come out of the gate pretty strong uh, in the new year i'm wondering uh, if you could give us kind of a status update now for how the brand is doing right now and any sort of recent updates the one thing that we wanted to make sure was sort of out with the old in with the new meaning let's get rid of all the inventory let's give the consumer a great shopping experience over the next three months. Um, you know, retail is, is is pretty much on sale all over the world right now. So let's move through all of that inventory. So on the surface, it looks pretty good. You know, I think that it's important that you and I have this discussion sort of 12 months from today because the team that was, was in there in the past, the success that we're having right now isn't necessarily from us. It's really from the old team because the old, 
what you're seeing and, and, and what's selling and what's working is from the old team. So, you know, I can honestly say that the team that we have in place, which is 350 employees at the, the head office and approximately uh, 11,000 employees in the store, they're all pretty happy, right? Because they all thought when this company went into chapter 11, it was sort of going away, right? And mm -hmm. it was going to be a very sad Christmas. Well, it's not a sad Christmas. It's a very, very happy Christmas. It's pretty amazing how long companies manage to hang on and circle the drain, and some never actually do go away. The deciding factor is the quality of the brand and its emotional connection to shoppers. I mean, if you think about Barnes & Nobles, for instance, it's kind of got this like cozy connotation in my mind. Like, I didn't have that with Borders. Oh yeah, how, how come it has that cozy connection, Lindsay? I did have one of my first kisses in the Barnes & Nobles. Wow. It comes back to a theme that we bring up over and over on this show, that consumers really crave authenticity. That's why a lot of smaller bookstores are coming back, too. So think about that when you head to the mall or head online to finish up your holiday shopping. Thanks for listening to this episode of Material World. Check out our other episodes on Bloomberg.com, iTunes.com slash Material World, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Jenny M. Kaplan and Lindsay's at LC Rupp. You can follow Authentic Brands' efforts with Aeropostale at Aeropostale. And you can check out the books in Bazillion Points library at bazillionpoints.com. You can follow our colleague Lauren Coleman Lochner at Lauren Lochner. Material World is produced by Magnus Henriksen and Liz Smith. The head of Bloomberg's podcast team is Alec McCabe. We'll be back in two weeks with a special look ahead to 2017. People have smiles on their face. People are happy. Happy okay. wife, happy life, right? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cuttereconomicforum.com.